Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. Our guest today is CEO, CIO, and Lead Senior Portfolio Manager, Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. All right, so Chris, here we are, uh, second week of April. Uh, things are, are still not looking great, so figured we'll do a quick catch up on, on where we're at from a market perspective. Um, you know, if you've listened to any of our past uh, handful of podcasts, we find, you know, we came into 2020 here um, with extreme valuation levels. Uh, we were in the midst of a, of a really quite large credit bubble, credit bubble um, excessive leverage at the corporate level, municipal level, state, federal, um, global, all right? And, um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic here is, is in the midst of causing a, a pretty substantial global recession um, at depression level contraction. So, um, Chris, uh, you know, the first question for you here is, you know, can you take us through the steps um, that uh, from a fiscal and monetary authority perspective here? Um, that we've seen so far? Yeah, I'm happy to do that, Dan. And I'd say, you know, what we probably need to start doing from this point forward is just kind of having an update weekly because these programs do seem to be coming at us pretty quickly. And I think that pace will continue uh, because I do think it's going to take a, a lot of a Herculean effort from federal authorities to offset the contraction underway. Uh, so, so far, what we've seen are a handful of measures, and while typically we'd like to separate monetary from fiscal policy, the truth is that they're connected. They're connected at the hip at this point. Um, the Fed is no longer independent, and they're not even masquerading as if they are independent, uh, and that may present issues further down as we do get to recovery and people start to evaluate the longer-term implications of that. Um, so far, what we've seen are stimulus measures equal to about 40% of GDP, uh, and they're growing. Uh, we've seen first the Fed going back to their original playbook, which was liquidity facilities designed to backstop commercial paper, uh, backstop and purchase investment-grade credit. We've seen the old actors come back and they outsource the management of those facilities to the very people that need it most. So I'm sure there's no self-dealing there. Um, we've seen the Fed announce unlimited QE for both treasuries and mortgages. We've seen them expand swap lines and their availability to central banks, both expanding who has access. And naturally those are unlimited uh, unregulated and off balance sheet, so there's no transparency there. And we've also seen them issue for the first time and set up treasury repo facilities with global central banks. And this was really driven out of the need for central banks, for our central bank not to allow foreign central banks to sell their treasuries in order to receive the funding they need. Um, when you kind of add all this up, it's easily 40% of GDP and growing. There's new facilities being put in place that are actually direct lending from the Federal Reserve to what I'd call mid-sized corporate entities. Um, so while we have the, you know, the PPP uh, to help support payroll at businesses with less than 500 employees. We have direct stimulus checks to individuals in order to supplement their income. We have expanded unemployment benefits, really those mid-size entities that aren't necessarily investment grade, but 
don't meet the small business requirements were kind of left in the lurch. Well, fortunately, the Treasury went to their slush fund and allocated some $450 billion to the Fed Reserve that's then going to lever that up 10 times uh, in order to provide financing to corporations directly. So, as I said, you know, fiscal and monetary policy are joined at the hip at this point. The sizes are just incredible. Uh, and they certainly go a long way to addressing the liquidity needs of markets, not just so they can function, but really getting the dollars in the hands of foreign borrowers to hopefully uh, kind of dampen some of that upward pressure that's been on the U.S. dollar that's been tightening um, uh, um, markets uh, from a monetary standpoint. So a lot of things going on, and and as I said, I, I don't think we've seen the end of it by a long shot. Yeah. Uh, so you, know, you bring up liquidity and the Fed is, is, is pumping in an unprecedented amount of market or, or creating an unprecedented amount of, money, uh, of liquidity. Uh, how does that flow through to the solvency of businesses? I think that's something that's uh, on a lot of people's minds today. Yeah, and that's really the, the next issue. Um, while it, it, we can we are hopeful that we have solved the liquidity issues that, uh, that developed in the market in the first quarter of this year. Uh, unlike 0809, where the Fed took almost a year to put these programs in place, they have them on the shelf, they pulled them out, and they went to them immediately. And so that allows markets to function. If you have sufficient liquidity for markets to function, then we can go to the price discovery phase, which is not only who has access, but at what price, uh, who no longer has access. Um, and so I think that's the stage we're entering right now. So there may be other liquidity issues that pop up, and we're certainly seeing that there's still issues in credit markets, but we're moving to the solvency question, which is a much, much larger question, and it was ultimately going to be the issue we were dealing with anyway, because we came into this cycle, as you noted, with a very large credit bubble, and it was already starting to burst, and we were having those rolling repricings. We saw what happened to WeWork. We've seen capital get cut off from the energy sector. Uh, this is just going to accelerate it. So, you know, you can imagine, uh, depending on the nature of the recovery, uh, who else would, quote, need a bailout? Um, you could probably put on the list every city, county, state in this nation, all of the pension plans. Uh, and not to mention every unprofitable business out there that's been financed with easy money. So, you know, as, as we, we go through these items that you listed off, uh, you know, that we've, we've seen action taken upon. And then if I look at the response of, of the market, uh, you know, just over the last week or so, and, and again, just kind of small sample size, given what we've gone through already here in, in, in 2020. Um, but just in the last week or so, we've seen a bit of a bounce back. So, you know, that leads to the question of, you know, what do you think is, is currently priced into the market today? Yeah. So, you know, we're following the, the typical pattern you have in the boom and bust. Um, and a lot of times it goes from uh, disbelief to, to belief to despair. And I would I would still say we're kind of in the disbelief camp, which is unlike other recessions where there's a debate in the market as data comes out, some confirming, some denying that we're going into recession and so the market's slowly pricing it in which and it can take months or even quarters for that to happen 
this was very abrupt. We knew what the issue was. The economy was immediately shut down. And so that was discounted very sharply. Then the market can look out a few months and say, okay, do we see a light at the end of the tunnel? There's also a, a psycho, not just a psychological element to this, but a mechanical element that the initial downdraft that's driven by the spike in volatility forces investors, levered investors, to delever. And so you get that forced deleveraging and that sell-off. Then you get some natural relief as price builds confidence, price stability, then price increases. Then you get those fast traders to come in to, to chase it back up. And ultimately, what was needing to be discounted does, in fact, come true. And you typically go down and, and kind of price in, uh, the, go back to the old lows or, or new lows. In this case, when I look at what's priced in, it's stunning. Um, you know, we're contracting at about, let's just say, 20 to 30% annualized rate on a quarterly basis. Um, there's zero chance that this is a V-shaped recovery. And yet, when we look at the market today on April 8th, the NASDAQ is higher for the last 12 months. The S&P sees a mid-single-digit decline. Small caps, on the other hand, the most sensitive securities are still down 25 to 30%. For a little bit of perspective, a mild recession, you would expect a 35% decline. A significant recession, you would expect a 50% decline. A depression, you could expect an 80% decline. And I just want to reiterate, we know we're having a significant recession. And I don't think it's out of the question that this morphs into uh, a depression on a real basis as we try to address these underlying credit issues that ultimately are going to be need to be dealt with, whereas we were going to have a decade to deal with them. I really think we're going to have to be forced to deal with them in the next 36 months. Um, when you look at it on an individual sector basis, there's still a lot of disparity in equity markets. But for anybody to sit here and think the broad averages are cheap, it's just nonsensical. You know, we looked at GDP or, or the Wilshire 5000 market cap to GDP. Uh, at the peak in the first quarter, we were nearly 160%. At the low, we were maybe 114. Now we're maybe at 120. Still an incredibly elevated level, comparable to what we would have seen in 2007. And when you think about the nature of this shock being also a supply shock, there's nothing that says that not only will we have massive deflationary pressures, uh, they could give way to very sudden inflationary pressures as well, which has a both. Either one of those scenarios has a very material impact on valuation. And so you could kind of go back to pre-1995 valuation levels. And in those scenarios, your market cap to GDPs are usually sub 100. So, you know, you, you present, you know, interesting situation here, right? And, you know, we've, for all the talk of, of recession and, you know, if you want to define recession, um, uh, but, but looking out at it or, or as a defined recession, but then you look at it and, you know, you, what you're painting here is, you know, there's, there's some pretty unique risks, uh, accord, you know, with this, with this particular environment here in 2020. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's what we need to highlight, especially as I think, Contextually, investors are really struggling with the magnitude of the numbers. They see them, but they see the reflexive bounce. They see the fast actions by Congress, and they're like, okay, we'll get through this, and we'll go back to the way things were before. 
And that right. just, quite frankly, isn't going to be the case. Right. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. I just like just one thing to highlight with this recession is we're having a supply shock um, and we're paying people a lot of money to stay home. It doesn't mean they're going to come back. Uh, they're certainly not going to come back and travel like they used to. They're certainly not going to come back and gather like they used to. At the same time, we have the federal government taking a much, much larger role and not just our our regulation, but in capital allocation, they will and are picking winners and losers. And these decisions are going to be increasing, and there's going to be a much larger impact that's not going to be capital friendly as we start to address these imbalances. Right. So you you mentioned before, you know, you think there's uh, you know virtually no no chance that we end up seeing a V-shaped recovery here. Um, you know. Do you still believe that, or I guess you do believe that, despite the fact that you know the, the huge stimulus measures that um, have been have been thrown at this problem? Um, and if you are of the opinion that it will not be a V-shaped recovery, you know how, how do you think um, the economic recovery ultimately it does unfold? Yeah, so there's a lot of data for this, so we don't. I, I don't even think we need to guess at how this unfolds. I mean, we know how it's going to unfold, and I say that because when you look at the impact at the individual level on income and wealth, when people get a recovery in their income, either because of a stimulus check or because of a resumption in economic activity, the first thing they do is replenish those savings, replenish that balance sheet, pay down that credit card that they had to run up in order to stay afloat during the downturn, and it doesn't immediately go into consumption. So that kind of delays the recovery in and of itself. Then when we look at the nature of this recession, there's a couple of things. We will be pulling more of our supply chain back, and that's not going to be unique to us. Everybody's going to do that. Uh, that's going to slow down global trade, which then slows down global cash flows, which then will force more deleveraging. It also is going to reduce margins. And again, that's going to reduce equity values, and that in and of itself is going to drive more savings and balance sheet repair. Industries that were vulnerable, the cruise business is not going to come snap back. Housing, although you know we're constructive on housing, it's going to be a slower recovery. Um, I you know I wouldn't be surprised to see some real weakness in home prices, which again creates issues and, and draws out the recovery. Uh, global travel, uh, domestic travel, uh, is going to be slower to come back. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast, and that has significant add-on impacts as we go through this. So uh, that doesn't even include, and this is how I think it. We, we if I was sitting here and saying, okay, we're not going to have a vaccine, how do we go back to work? We're going to see very extensive testing to see how broad the population has already had the virus. One, we now have pretty good data on who is truly at risk, what those underlying conditions are. And we know there's several factors, right? Hypertension, diabetes, uh, prior illnesses that, that leave the immune system compromised. Uh, those in addition to age are your high risk factors. And some of those underlying conditions re result in mortality rates 
well in excess of 50%, some as high as 90%. So without a treatment, that portion of the population is going to remain inactive and remain isolated. And that tends to be, you know, somewhat of the older population that was additive to our workforce. They had extended the length that they were in the workforce or they came back into the workforce. And that's also where the savings is. So uh, the, the population that really has sustained this recovery as we got to the later stages of it is the very one that, that's not coming back. So the working population is going to be smaller. The capacities to spend is going to be smaller. It's just going to take some time to get through this unless, you know, we have a, a vaccine in the short term. And in that scenario, we still got underlying serious, serious credit issues, including corporate balance sheet recession that we need to go through. So if you know, we have this, you know, this historical, uh, this historical group of uh, workers that were additive uh, that are now inactive, uh, yep. we ultimately have uh, this delayed consumption effect as a result of you know, when, when they start to get the stimulus money or they start to get back to work. They ultimately are first replenishing their savings, then they're paying down their uh, excess credit, right? Um, that sounds to me like we're, we're talking, of, again, you know, in, in agreement with you here, but, you know, it's not a V-shaped recovery, right? This is something that nope. is, is dragged out. And, you know, so, wh so what are the real risks of having a recovery that's drug, drug out throughout the course of multiple quarters or, or even multiple years? And, you know, is it beyond just capitulation of the investor? Is it, is it beyond that? Or what does that look like? Yeah, the biggest risk is the fact that economic activity provides the cash flow that provides the lubricant to service credit markets. And unfortunately, we came in with just a historical credit bubble, and that bubble has popped. Um, it was already deflating, but now this has popped it. That's why the Fed is expanding its balance sheet at such a massive size and a rapid pace. Now, when you have slow economic growth and slow economic recovery, that just exacerbates the unwind of that, of that credit bubble even more. And so it means, in my mind, while people are looking, it, you know, don't look for share purchases to come back on a gross basis. We're not going to resolve this until we have share issuance. So, you know, we've got a long way to go. And unfortunately, all of these things have a big impact on valuations of assets and the market is still masquerading as if we're going to reach escape velocity at the end of this year and next year we're going to be growing you know two percent real with one to two percent inflation uh, with the same level of share buybacks the same level of employment and no underlying issues and that just couldn't be further from the truth right. it's, hard, it's hard to think that you know companies today won't have uh um, a little more cash on hand as opposed to utilizing it all for, for buybacks just in the event yeah. that, you know, something like this happens again in the future. And, and think about it, not just cash on hand, extra inventory, right? right? That That's a higher cost, lower return, lower profitability item. So we were running at a pretty lean level, um, and, and we need to address that. We're going to have a more durable uh, economy after this, but we've got some pain to go through. And we were already in the process of going through a reset. That's what we term the next decade, the decade of defaults, where you either default on the obligation or you default on the underlying stability and, and value and purchasing power of your currency. That's what we're accelerating. 
which creates very different winners and losers. And people are going to get confused because they, they're going to be surprised that we're going to see massive deflationary pressures this year. And there's a chance, it doesn't mean it has to happen, but we're not going to be surprised if those immediately turn into very significant underlying and inflationary expectations. Um, and, you know, 90% of the people that are investing have no clue uh, what the leads are for that or what the implications are for that. Okay. Uh, so the last one I have for you today, you know, as, as much time as we've spent focused on the credit bubble, um, you know, can you provide an update on the credit markets? And, and do you think that uh, they've confirmed a, a bit of a market rally off the lows at this point? Yeah. Now, I, this is what I would say. The, the liquidity the Fed has provided helped the credit markets. And what they did was they dampened volatility. They've allowed for some spread compression back in investment grade. They lowered the volatility in the treasury market, which is the underlying collateral for a lot of investments. And that's a good thing. Um, but credit leads equities. And within credit, cash markets lead credit. And cash markets are still inverted and very stressed. Again, this is just like what, what, what happened around Bear Stearns, uh, which is to say the deepest and most liquid credit markets, the euro dollar markets are saying this is a very slow recovery and there is potential for real issues to develop. And they're, they're not looking for to gain any comfort really until early fall before they feel like things they'll have some visibility into whether things are, are going to be on a sustainable trajectory or there's going to be bigger shoes and bigger issues. Um, so what I would say is what we've done is, is prevented a further sell-off and, and real dislocation, but by no stretch our credit market's healed and ready to go. There's been virtually zero recovery in high yield spreads. Um, we, we've seen some issuance recently for private companies that would indicate some serious solvency issues because the rates at which they're borrowing are not sustainable. Um, but there's money out there. But as I, would, as I would say, it is still way too early to give the all clear. And the cash markets are saying there is more trouble ahead. Don't be surprised if volatility resumes and we don't go back and retest lows or set new lows. Great. Well, good. Well, this, is, this has been very helpful for me, uh, hopefully for the folks listening as well. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to picking up the, the frequency of the podcast as we continue to, to plow our way through this, uh, the, the pandemic and working from home and, and all the, uh, all of the, the joys that come around with that. So um, we will be in touch soon and appreciate your time. Thank you, Chris. You bet. Thanks, Dan. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission 
and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.